So the question is, if the body dies at death and the Atman goes from one body to another, what about the desires? How are they transferred? Well, from an Advaitic perspective, this is what happens. When the physical body drops away, there is a subtle body. What's the difference between the physical body and the subtle body? Physical body is this, the public body, which Dr. Jhala, he has spent a lifetime examining and uh, giving anesthesia, putting to yeah. sleep, yes. <laughs> and pervading this physical body is what we call the subtle body. And nothing very mysterious about the subtle body. All of us know it. Just now when we look inside, we feel um, thoughts and feelings and emotions and perceptions. That is what is called the subtle body. Specifically in Vedanta, the distinction is this. Physical body is called Stula Sharira. Subtle body is called Sukshma Sharira. What's the difference? Stula Sharira is what is called Annamaya Kosha. The sheath of food, that means which is transformed. Food is transformed into this physical body. That's what the doctor examines. That's what you weigh um, and you measure the height and so on. That's what is a man, a woman, um, a part person of a particular race or color and so on. The subtle body is pra pranamaya kosha, manomaya kosha, vijnanamaya kosha. The three sheets successively subtler and inward of prana whose effects are the vital functions which keep the physical body alive. For example, the prana is, is that which uh, is responsible for the circulation of the blood, for digestion, uh, basically for health. Mis uh, the not functioning of the prana would lead to, say, illness and so on. So yoga and Ayurveda, Hatha Yoga, Ayurveda, they deal with the prana. In fact, health is more a question of the prana rather than the physical body. And subtler than this is the mind, our thoughts and feelings, which we have right now. Subtler than that is the, in, is the intellect. They're not different things. The mind and the intellect are the same thing, just the functions are different. We feel it when we look inside. When you are working on a math problem, looking at the, trying this way, that way, that's the mind. And when you make the breakthrough and, and say, aha, I got it, that's the intellect. The determinative faculty and, and the faculty which considers options, mind and the intellect. Ego is also there. Ego is also a function of the mind, which says, you know, they are, they are, they, all of these have very precise definitions in, in uh, uh, Vedanta, in Indian philosophy. ahankara. The ego is that function of the mind which says I and appropriates to itself all the functionings of the body-mind. So it would be in our example, the driver, the buddhi. One of the functions of the driver is, I am driving. I own this vehicle. Uh, I, I work for uh, Uber or something like that. So that is the, that's the ego. You are not the ego also. You are beyond all of this. Beyond the subtle body, there's something called the causal body, which is Anandamaya Kosha. Anyway, the point is, responding to Dr. Um, Jala's question, what is death? Death is the death of the, the physical body, the gross body, the, the sthula sharira. But the pranamaya kosha, manomaya kosha, vijnanamaya kosha, and the anandamaya kosha, the other four sheets, they do not die. And they continue. They are the ones which are transferred to another body, to other worlds, the, the heavens which Nachiketa asked for, the, um, how to go to on some of these heavens later on. So th that's this, these, the subtle body 
it goes on. Your, your laptop has all the data. And the, the laptop itself is like the physical body. And the data inside is like the subtle body. Just because the laptop is crashed, it's not working, your data is still in the cloud. So you can download into another new laptop. Similarly, the subtle body goes on into, it continues to exist. Now, what about the Atman? What travels? The subtle body. What does not travel, what is buried or cremated? The physical body. Now, the Atman is neither of them. Is neither of them. Uh, it's not the physical body. It's not even the subtle body. Just as the passenger is not the driver, and not even the reins, not even the horses. So the, uh, the Atman is the consciousness which is shining on all of them. A good example would be, imagine the sun shining right now. And you have these pots full of water. Now in each of these pots you will see a shining little sun, a reflected sun. Now the pot is like the physical body. The water is like the subtle body. And that little reflected sun would be what is called chidabhasa, reflected consciousness. What is this reflected consciousness? The awareness which you and I, we feel right now. We feel aware, right? We, most of us at least. <laughs> Too hot, Swami. <laughs> we are hungry and hot and tired. We don't feel very aware at all. Even a little bit of awareness, if it's there, that's the reflected awareness. That's not pure consciousness. That's not the Atman. Why? Apply the same logic. If you are aware of it, if you're even aware of awareness here as an object, then you are not it. So that awareness, like the reflected sun, is called the reflected awareness. And this whole thing, pot, water, reflected awareness, and the, the reflected sun, and the original sun, is what we are right now. What the Kathopanishad is telling us is, you are not the pot. You are not the water. You are not even that little reflected sun. You are the original sun. That's what Kathopanishad is trying to tell us. Our current condition is like, if we are unenlightened, our condition is like, I am the pot. And a little more refined thinking, sensitive person, uh, who goes to museums once in a while, uh, I am the water in the pot. The Upanishad is saying, no, you are not even the water in the pot. Now what is death? When a pot is cracked, when it breaks, the gardener may come and pour the water into a new pot and throw away the old pot. So the pot is like a body. And the water in the pot is like um, the subtle body. And when you pour the water into a new pot, what will happen to the reflected light, reflected sunlight? It will travel with the water. It will again go with the water into the new pot. And you will feel that I am now here. I am reborn in this heaven, or I'm reborn as this child. We may not have the memory also. So the desires or tendencies continue in that. Where do they continue? If it was a dirt, if it was dirty water in the earlier pot, it will continue to be dirty when you pour into. Uh -huh. If it was sugar water in the earlier glass, it will continue to be a sugar water uh, in, in the new glass also. So. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. You had raised your hand. Tell us your name. Who's next? Would you had raised your hand? You'll come next. So Pranam Swamiji, my yes. name is Kiran. I have a question about intuition. So they say realization can happen through intuition. Yes. And sometimes even in you know worldly 
problems as you mentioned before that breakthrough we feel that it's coming from a higher power than <coughs> us but in this body mind complex or paradigm where does intuition stand yeah it's not a term which you find in vedanta in kashmiri shaivism it's given a lot of importance it's it's in fact a word they used is pratibha word pratibha of course you know, we indians will immediately say yeah i know that but we know it the way we know it in bengali or hindi or the indian languages is talent creativity talent pratibha but the original term in kashmiri shaivism is a flash of intu- intuition if you look at the breakup of the word bha means shining the shining forth uh, as a response to a particular situation so how does intuition whatever it is how does it function it seems to be without any kind of calculation without any kind of you know oh, this is a situation let me refer to my knowledge and then uh, without any kind of thinking behind it as a flash it comes immediately often what comes as a flash if it is correct knowledge uh, is actually the product of a lot of training and practice in uh, in the background usually so a doctor may have an intuition about a patient who so the doctor has an enormous amount of experience dealing with thousands of patients over the years so sees a patient and without consciously thinking much about it already knows a lot but that pratibha that intuition everybody else will not have that comes from um if you are if uh, from practice from previous experience training experience if you are a teacher dealing with little children i have had that experience very soon you seem to be a mind reader because little children are not too difficult to read either so it's uh, it is like a magical power but you know what mischief the next kid is going to be up to you just look at the whole situation and you know so that is intuition and that can ap- apply to spiritual life also so it functions something like that in vedanta the intuition would function when it is when it is surcharged with on a firm foundation of vedantic training and the training is shravana manana niridhyasana listen to it again and again and again the teaching is already there in our modern age where free thinking is is praised and critical thinking and uh, creativity often it works against at, at cross purposes people will come and say that so i have understood in this way this is what it means uh, an entirely new philosophy a uh, uh, second uh, upanishad the person is no need to make a new road the road already exists the point is not to have your own theory of it the point is to use this particular approach and to come to that realization come to this intuition so what i'm saying is yes intuition works but for that that experience and training is necessary in vedanta the experience and training is shravana manana nididhyasana and of course the mind must be ready that kind of purity and concentration chitta shuddhi chitta ekagrata purity of mind and concentration must be there with that mind when you focus it on vedanta for some time keep studying and listening to these teachings reason it out clarity comes sit with that clarity for some time it becomes a living truth at the moment there is a particular moment where you have a breakthrough when when you have that breakthrough it can feel like intuition you can call it intuition if you want it's a good question yes Please tell us your name and ask the question. Uh, my name is Norbert Chusit. Uh, thank you for the beautiful talk. A uh, question that I have is uh, 
I believe that I have some experience with Shravanam, Mananam, Nidhi, Dhyasanam. But um, I can't hold it for um, any time. So mm. I actually wanted some help with devotion. Mm. Uh, could you say something? Like uh, Nachiketa, he came to the house of death. Yes. He sat there three days and nights, and yes. so there is got to be some great devotion present already in this person. Right. And uh, that's what I wanted to ask about. Right. Is there? Is it possible to get it, or is it just yes. within the nature? Yes. Um, I'll go back to what you said first. I listened to you very carefully. You said, I have some experience with Shravana, Manana, Nididhyasana, but I find it difficult to hold on to. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that? What is it that you find difficult to hold on to? Um, the Shravana, Manana, Nididhyasana itself? Or what it is pointing to? No, uh, what it is pointing to. Ah. In other words, um, you could probably say that Nididhyasanam didn't really happen because it hasn't been in internalized firmly. Huh. Uh, but again, this, the, there is difficulty simply in concentrating on, let's say, the mantra to the exclusion of everything All right. for a duration. Yeah. And, um, well, I'll let... Uh, um, yes, I, I see what you're saying. Um, I'll give you a general answer later, but I'll give you the real answer first, see if it makes sense. This one which says, aha, I have got it, and it says, well, I can't hold on to it. I can't hold on to it. That one, is it there always? Do you have to hold on to it? Uh, no, I don't. No, you don't. Uh, Who can't. is the one, the one which feels, I, I got it and I did not, I'm not able to hold on to it? Is it the mind? Um, yes, very luckily, because... It is Remembering the mind. and forgetting is a function of the mind. Exactly. Remembering and forgetting is a, for, a function of the mind. And even this demand that I got it, but I am unable to hold on to it, this is also a function of the mind. Right? Yes. The one which recognizes the Shravana, Manana, Nididhyasana going on, and which recognizes that you got it, but it went away, that one is continuous. You don't have to get it. You don't have to uh, hold on to it. That one, you. The one, you, the one who recognized that I am doing Shravana, Mananitityasana. You are the same one who recognized I am getting it. I am the witness. You are the same one who recognized I lost it. But you did not lose yourself. Um... Well, there are times when this is questionable, like when I get very angry or when I, uh, um, when I don't get my way, that, yeah. uh, right. th these 
so let us again carefully ex examine what you said. When I get very angry, let's have a dissatisfying state, and it should not be if I'm an enlightened person, <laughs> right? Right. But there are times when it is a satisfying state, that my mind is calm, and there is insight, and there is peace, and there's times, yes. right? Both of the times you have recognized? Yes. The one who recognized both of these times, is that one angry? No, it's just light. It's not it's just light. Uh, Instead of saying it's just light, try saying I am just light. I am just light. Yes. And notice that yes, I am just light. Sometimes the mind is full of that light and recognizes it, which is nice. Sometimes the mind gets busy with the uh, world outside sometimes negatively so, but I still am light. It is the mind which throws up certain demands. It says that, hey, if you're enlightened, then shouldn't uh, the mind be calm and peaceful and serene? Mind is not calm and peaceful and serene, so you are not enlightened. Who said this? Uh, I do very uh, often, and that is my mind. That is the mind. <laughs> that is the mind. What I mean by the mind is, that light, you the light, is the light upset or angry? Or the mind is upset and angry? Clearly the mind is upset and angry because it comes and goes. You notice what you said, I the light was there when it felt good, I the light was there when it did not feel good. So the feeling good and not feeling good, it cannot be the light because it is constant. Yes. It is the mind. Right? Yes. And it is a demand of the mind. Mind tells you, if you were enlightened, wouldn't your mind be serene all the time and you'd have a smiley face all the time? <laughs> maybe, maybe, but one little thing has to be done. Right now, we must see clearly that there is still a mixture of mind and Atman here. Yes. Yes. And that mixture, that not which ties the mind to the Atman. Where is the connection? Where is the connection? What is tying it? Um, well, attachment, I guess, that's the... Attachment, the only thing that is tying it, the only thing that gives rise to that attachment is this confusion between mind and Atman. Uh, that I, that clarity, that I am the light, and whatever the light falls upon, I am not it. That clarity is not there. Correct. Uh -huh. That's what leads to confusion again and again. Right. Now, what needs to be there is, the mind is putting forth a demand that I should be serene and peaceful and joyful, smiley face all the time. Right? Instead of that, put give the mind something else. Because if you say, yeah, I'm the light all the time, the mind will say, what is it in, in it for me then? Mm -hmm. You are the light all the time, but I am sometimes happy, sometimes unhappy. So give the mind something. You offer the mind this. Oh mind, whenever you are unhappy, refer back to me. <laughs> you will see your unhappiness will go away. In a flash. 
Could you say it again, please? Offer this to the mind. Offer this to the mind, because the mind has to be satisfied. Mind needs something. If you say to the mind, I am the unchanged Atman, you know that, oh mind. Mind will say, yeah, you're the unchanged Atman, but I still, you know, I have got my problems. Okay, here's the solution for your problem. The moment you sense a problem, the moment you feel uncomfortable, moment you feel unhappy, refer back to me the light. Your unhappiness will disappear. Thank you very much. Very good. Uh, does it make sense? Um, I will come back and tell you. Okay. <laughs> did it? Did it? Did it make sense to anybody? Yes. yes. Many, many of you. It did make sense. It makes sense. Yeah. What I'm saying is, notice the tricky nature of the mind's demand. I must be serene, trouble-free all the time. If I am enlightened, or if I belong to an enlightened person, then I must be serene and trouble-free. That's a trick. The mind is never constant. It changes from one state to another state. Thoughts come and go all the time. So, offer a compromise to the mind. Oh mind, if at any time you are not serene, not trouble-free, you know, give the ball back in the mind's court. If you're not trouble-free, instead of complaining, oh, I'm not enlightened. No. Instead of complaining, just refer back to me the witness of the mind. I am your witness. Refer back to me. Turn around and look at me. Your troubles will disappear. Thank you. Yes. So that was the direct answer. And the secondary answer everybody knows is that the simple thing is stick to Shravan Mana Nidityasana. Uh, traditional teachers would say, not working, no, repeat. <laughs> not working yet, no, better luck next life. <laughs> no, it is there. Shankaracharya himself, asupte ramrite kalam nayet vedanta chintaya. Till one falls asleep, always a possibility in Vedanta, and till one dies, spend your time. In, in constant Vedantic thought. Shravana, Manana, Nidityasana. That's why there are so many Upanishads, so many, you know, the Bhagavad Gita is there, so many texts. Aparokshanabhuti, At Atma Bodha, Vivek Churamani, Drigdrishya Viveka. So many texts are there. So many ways of teaching are there. Yeah. Somebody else? Yes, please come. Tell us your name and ask the question. Uh, my name is Kanan. Hmm. Swamiji, you explained, um, sorry, you explained about um, the physical body, subtle body, and the consciousness which uh, uh, shines on it, and which is the Atman. And um, so I take it that um, my understanding is that uh, therefore the realization that you explained today is to be, re uh, is to be understood as that can be something that can be realized now and here and now, which is means during this life rather than the next life. So if that is the case, so the life as it is that we have is can be realized because we are not seeing it, but it is an heaven is nothing but what we have right now. But also you explained about the spiritual heaven, which has though which, which is different from the layers of heaven, the, um, heaven that you described. But spiritual heaven is something different. Is spiritual heaven different? Is spiritual heaven? different from the life that we actually see now. 
So the spiritual heaven, which in Vedanta is a general term for it, Brahmaloka. So that would be equivalent to um, the heaven which we speak about in the great religions of the world, the Christian heaven or the Islamic heaven or the Vaikuntha of the Vaishnavas, Kailasha of the Shaivites and so on. The pure land of the Buddhists. They don't talk about God, but there's a heaven there. So there's a pure land, it's, they call it pure land. There's a whole pure land Buddhism. And they in fact go so far as to say each Buddha creates his, his or her own pure land. Now, is this different? Yes. Different means it may be right here, but Swami Vivekananda says a different higher plane of vibration. So we feel the presence of God and live in the presence of God. Now in Vedanta, there are these two tracks. Fast track, slow track. Fast track is called Sadhya Mukti, immediate uh, enlightenment and release, freedom. When? Here and now. Through what? Through this realization. Through Shravana, Manana, Niridhyasana, hear about it, think about it, meditate upon it and realize I am Brahman and done. In this life itself. You must have freedom in this life. Consolation prize, if it doesn't work out, there is the slower, the scenic route, which is you go up to heaven. Even there they say, if there are still worldly desires, you'll have to come back again. If there are no worldly desires, from that heaven one attains moksha. So yes, that's a devotional approach. But Advaita Vedanta says, don't think about that. Here is a straight way out. Here is the truth being presented to you. Think about it. Stay with it. You'll get it. Why should we not get it? We are that reality. So we should get it here and now itself. Yeah. Thank you. Anybody else? No questions? Yes, please come. Tell us your name and ask the question. Sure. My name is Shweta. And my question is actually quite similar to the one that the gentleman asked. Uh, you've probably answered it in theory, but if you could offer a little bit more practical advice on how to live it. Essentially, the, the, the essence of Advaita is very simple. Once yeah. you get it, there is no selling. You don't have to sell it. Yeah. The only complexity then involved is the time it takes to imbibe it in your everyday life. and. Oh. Even if I know the truth or I understand the truth, huh. not necessarily had any enlightenment, but I huh. at least understand the principle. And I still, my body still has to live in this everyday world that still has to do the karma. Yes. In doing that, now there is this constant tussle or struggle between, you know, I, I realize this truth. Hmm. Exactly what you said, you know, yes. the, the mind is playing this trick. I have to be serene, but I'm not because I have to solve these little problems in life. I have to live my everyday life. It could be a silly problem being stuck, not being able to add two numbers, right? Something sim as simple as that, not necessarily a materialistic desire, but just that sort of struggle that bothers the body and that bothers the mind. How to calm it and, and sort of Correct. gain control over it? And it's a Good question. So, first of all, let me address that question. Many people ask, so it's good in theory, but, can you immediately see the but coming up after that? All this you are saying good in theory, or sometimes it's put in this way. All this I understand, Swami, but what are we to do now? <laughs> the traditional answer from a traditional teacher of Vedanta would be, 
I understand it, but what are we to do now? If you ask what are we to do now, that the first part is wrong. You have not understood it. <laughs> In all other spiritual paths, except Advaita Vedanta, and I would say Dzogchen Buddhism maybe, and all other paths, there's something to be done. If you attend a class on the Yoga Sutras, after that you have to do asana, to sit, and uh, pranayama, and uh, withdraw the mind, meditate. Uh, if you learn uh, Hatha Yoga, we have the International Day of Yoga, so you have to actually go out and do it. If you just attend a class, you will get no benefit from it. If you learn about the Narada Bhakti Sutras, the way of devotion, but devotion also has to be practiced and ultimately you have to go beyond practice. A practiced love is not really love. But one can come to real love through uh, trying to love God. But you must do that. If you don't do it, it's, it's of no use. Japa, you get a mantra. You know about the mantra, you learn the theory also, but you don't repeat the mantra day and night. No effort, no, no, no result. But Advaita Vedanta is not like that. Once one gets it, even before the breakthrough, even before the realization that I am that reality, I'm not this body and mind, even before that, one sees one thing, that it's not a question of specifically doing something. If you feel the need to do something specifically, then do Vedanta specifically. Study, think, and stay with that, stay with that understanding. Otherwise, this is something that can be applied across the board. When you are walking, talking, sleeping. Because how does um, the clay pot, in doing what, is it practicing being clay? Whatever it does. Or it doesn't do anything. It is clay. All it needs to do, if it has the wrong notion that I am not clay, is realize that I am clay. That's all. Now that sounds confusing. Now about your application, does it have to be applied? Yes, it has to be applied. That's what uh, the special uh, teaching of Swami Vivekananda and Sri Ramakrishna. Spirituality must be manifested in life. So Swami Vivekananda's classic definition of religion, religion is the manifestation of the divinity already within us. It makes perfect sense when you read Advaita Vedanta. He did not say religion is, is the knowledge of the divinity within us. I often used to think that if you read classical Advaita Vedanta, you might give a definition like oh, spirituality or Vedanta is the knowledge, knowing the divinity within us. I am Brahman, realizing that or knowing that. Even this realization, manifestation, these are the words introduced by Vivekananda. Why? Because they include a component of not only knowing, but also applying. So if I know the divinity within, my life must be transformed. My thoughts, I am, I am pure consciousness. My thoughts are very impure. No, there's a dissonance there. I am the infinite Brahman. I'm terribly afraid of death. No, there's a dissonance there. There's some, some problem there. So it must be expressed in life. We, we talked about the results just uh, in, the, in the talk today. Three results were mentioned, going beyond desire. I am fully enlightened, I am Brahman, but I can't give up the cookies. <laughs> There's really no harm in cookies, but in general, my happiness depends upon things in the world. Without them, I am Brahman, but 
plus certain things. Otherwise, it has to be this way. If it's the other way, attachments. All of this reality is I, myself. But I'm attached to this person, this thing, this place, this job, this kind of food. Why? Yeah. So to some extent, that intuition of that oneness and the divinity must be expressed in mind, in speech, and in action. I say to some extent carefully, because in mind, in speech, in action, infinite cannot be expressed. After all, whatever you are, whether you are Sri Ramakrishna or anybody, it is still one body, a one mind, one life. So only a fraction of that perfection can be expressed there. But it must be expressed. At least I must be able to solve my own problems. Then only enlightenment. So go beyond desire. Go beyond sorrow. I am a jnani, but I am miserable. In Uttarakhand, they have a saying, Rota wa jnani kisi ko pasand nahi hai. A weeping jnani, enlightened man who weeps, enlightened one who weeps, is no good to anybody. Not to himself, not to anybody else. It's the most uninspiring picture. <laughs> and the third one was, Navijugupsate is completely secure. Does not try to protect oneself, whether physically or socially. It's completely, you see, they are childlike. They are open. They have no problem about being vulnerable. Absolutely no problem. They are very much at peace. Now, if these results are not coming in my life, then I'm, there is something to be done. That process of manifestation, that process of, um, um, I would say, realization. Knowledge and re realization means it becomes real in my experience. That has not yet been accomplished. The results must flow. They must accrue to me. The benefits must come. So until that time, what happens is, I must make an effort to live in the light of my knowledge. If I know it to be true, if I know it to be real, why can't I live accordingly? Even to a small extent. I know the infinite existence, consciousness, bliss cannot be manifested in this one body and mind. True. But can I not think that, soak myself in that feeling, and then protect myself against the small irritations of day-to-day -day life, the small upsets, or the big upsets also? Yeah. There should be nothing to me. Disease and uh, um, financial gain and loss and insult or praise. All of these should be seen as waves of the ocean which I am. Now, why is it difficult? You might ask. Why does So it should come automatically? No. No. It's difficult because of this. That's why Advaita Vedantins insist on a rigorous training before enlightenment. You see, this whole idea of the horses, the reins, and the driver, the intellect, at the level of the intellect, at the level of the uh, mind, at the level of uh, the senses. Three levels of sadhana have to be accomplished. If you have done that, then you are understanding. You'll be able to implement it so easily. If you have not done that, you may have an understanding but it will be a struggle to implement it. Why? Because I understand something, but it's very difficult to do it. Jonathan Hyde, who is a psychologist working, I think, in NYU, he had written a book which became a bestseller, The Happiness Hypothesis. 
happiness hypothesis. It sounds like one of those typical self-help books, but it's actually pretty deep. Because there he asks the question, we have so much of this self-help, you know, the positive psychology literature. You go to Barnes and Nobles here, one of the few which are remaining, you will see the largest section, by far largest section, is self-help section. How to be a great communicator, how to lose weight, how to, how to make friends and all that, Dale Carnegie, is, uh, old, old stuff. But it's full, row after row, shelf after shelf. Not that they're wrong, they're correct. Um, I mean, there's a lot of wisdom there. Jonathan Haidt asks the question, why is it not making a change in our lives? It promises so much. Not that it is false. Now there's a whole branch called um, positive psychology. It's a ac rigorous academic branch. So it's, it's uh, not anecdotal only. It is an academic discipline. Um, tells you how to change your life. But it's not working. The effects are far less than what you would expect. And he asks the question, why? And the answer he gives is very interesting. It ties in so well. He gives the analogy of the elephant and the rider. The, you know, the mahut, the one who controls the elephant. Now notice that the elephant is much stronger than the mahut. So the elephant will obey the mahut, the, the, the rider, only if the elephant wants to. The mahut wants to go this way. And the elephant can go this way if it wants to, but if it wants to go the other way, the mouth doesn't have the strength to drag the elephant that way. Now, in, think of your intellect as the rider, the intellect. The intellect and, and the rest of the body-mind system, sense organs and the physical body, sense organs and body especially, and mind also, as the rest of the system, the elephant. Now, it is the rider, the mahut, who's convinced by self-help books and seminars and Vedanta talks. This is great. I am infinite consciousness. I must do it. Next morning, from the, tomorrow onwards, my life will be perfect. I'll get up early in the morning and do yoga. Early in the morning, Manhattan, January, you try to get up, you don't feel like getting up. You have decided. Who decided? Intellect. And the body says, did you ever ask me? <laughs> it's cold. I don't want to get out of bed. You go and do your yoga. It tells the intellect. Oh, intellect, go and do yoga. I'm not getting out of bed. I'm staying under the... Uh... Why? The elephant is not listening to the mahut. What is happening here? Jonathan Haidt um, explains it very beautifully. He says, our sensory system, remember the horses... He says, our sensory system is autonomous. It has a certain amount of intelligence itself. So the way it is trained, there are things which our eyes like to see. There is, liking is not only in the mind. Our senses are trained in a particular way. Our ears like to hear this, don't like to hear that. Our gut likes to have this kind of food and not that kind of food. And this is so powerful. The elephant is so powerful that you make a decision now having attended seminars and read books and listened to YouTube talks, now I'm going to change. The rest of the body-mind say, you never asked me. I didn't sign up for this. And it's powerful, like the elephant is powerful. Then he says, what does the elephant respond to? What is, then how, does the how do you control the elephant? How does the ele what does the elephant respond to? You don't have the strength to control the elephant. The elephant responds to um, training, training. 
not intellect, not talks, not books, not lectures, <laughs> responds to training. Long and rigorous training, as the Mahut orders, the elephant responds, usually. And still, there are exceptions. Now, therefore, our sensory system has to be trained, even well before enlightenment. As we go through Vedanta teachings and study, sensory system has to be trained. Uh, I didn't talk about it. In the Upanishad, it's there at the very beginning. He says, Shreyascha Preyascha. Shreya means what is good for me. Priya means what is pleasant. These two, all the time it is presented to you, a decision. A decision, what is right and what is nice. If both were together, it would be really nice. <laughs> I like this food and it's the healthiest food for me. Great! But usually, you know, they say, if it tastes nice, it's not healthy. Spit it out. <laughs> Unfortunately, a lot of times in our life, what has happened is, what is pleasant for me at the moment is not good for me. Why would it be so? Why would it be so? Think about it. What is pleasant for me now is connected to the way my life is now. My life in ignorance, my life uh, uh, identified with body and mind, my life in samsara. So the things which I like will be samsaric. It's not, actually it's quite possible that what is pleasant to you and what is good for you can be the same. And it should be so. If you look at the lives of the saints, what they love and what is good for them are exactly the same thing. But for us there is a conflict. Because we have set our goal at being enlightened. And this is a present condition, very big difference. One teacher put it so beautifully. What is enlightenment? where you can finally stop being somebody, trying to be somebody else. Notice something, it's very subtle. All the time, the very fact that you are here, the very fact that we are doing Vedanta, anything in this world, we are trying to be a little different from what we are, because right now the way my life is, I don't like it. I don't like the body, it's sick maybe. Or my, it doesn't look good, maybe. I don't like my friends because they're not the kind of crowd I want to associate with. I don't like my apartment. It's not in the right part of town. I don't or maybe the school district is not good for my kids. Everything I'm trying to change. I get an education. I get money. I get friends. I'm trying to be somebody else all the time. And ultimately, when I'm wise, I'm trying to be Jivan Mukta, enlightened, Buddha, Ramakrishna. Again, trying to be somebody else. But when you are enlightened, when we, make, when we have realization, you stop doing that. Because you have found something which is infinite. Nothing better than that exists. The Bhagavad Gita says, realizing which, dukkhena guruna you are not shaken by the deepest of sorrows. Uh, realizing which, nothing further. Yam labdhva, having realized which, nothing further remains to be got. Nothing higher than that is there. So you stop there and you are absolutely at peace. But for that, the training of the senses from the beginning of the senses have to be trained. There are what is good and what is pleasant. Senses have to be trained. Uh, it takes effort and time to direct it continuously. Take the decision again and again and again. Not the pleasant, the good. Not the pleasant, the good. If you don't take a decision about it, the senses will automatically go to the pleasant. Default setting. 
they have to take a conscious decision, change it to the good. Then about training for the mind, samanaska, all these things are left out. Why am I saying all this? Without this, this question will come up. I understand it, but I can't live it. Even the understanding will be um, uh, foggy, confused. It will be understanding, no doubt. It will not be realization. So the mind has to be samanaska, mindful. Mindful. I keep forgetting. In Sanskrit, it is called pramada. Pramado vai mrityu. Forgetfulness, inattentiveness is death. Death means what? Spiritual death. So this mindfulness, very important practice. Mindfulness. And then, the next level, the training for the driver. You remember the driver? The buddhi? Intellect has to be, this clarity must be there. Most important is there. And if you're doing Vedanta, most important is there. The clarity there, mindfulness at the level of the mind, and training for the senses. What clarity? I know, Swami, I know I am Brahman. But my son quarrels with me. <laughs> Just a minute. You're Brahman. Brahman's son? See how immediately the intellect switched between two things. I am the witness consciousness. And next, I am this body and mind and my son quarrels with me. That guy is nasty to me. That guy is nasty to Brahman, the absolute? <laughs> no. It's lack of clarity. I think I've understood, but it's not so. It's just a vague conception that has come. A nice, a cool idea maybe. No, it's not just an idea. It's a fact. It is that understanding which will deepen into realization. So once we have this groundwork, this foundational work with the sensory system, with the mind, with the intellect, then when I try to implement it in my life, you'll see it's very easy. You will be, without knowing it, you'll have become a saint. Very good question. Thank you so much. We are ready to go downstairs? All right. Thank you very much. Please. You have a question? Or is it like, when can we eat? <laughs> come, come. Tell us your name. Anish. Just put the uh, microphone down. Uh, what's your name? Anish. Anish. Uh, how old are you? Six. Six. Okay. Ask your question. Who made God? Ah, who made God? Who made God? Everything was made by God, but who made God? Who made God? Uh, do you see that um, Yamaraja said, uh, that means it is not a cause nor an effect. That means God, all that ultimate reality, what we are talking about, it has no cause. Nobody who made God. God is the only reality, God exists. And everything else comes from God. And, and actually, Yamaraja says, nothing comes from God either. When you think something has come from God, it becomes the creator God of religion. But truly speaking, truly speaking, can you say, can you say that um, this is a wood, right? This is made of wood. This one, Anish, made of wood. Can you say that the, the lectern, this podium, has come from the wood, produced by the wood? You'd say, no, it is the wood. The wood alone appears as, the, as this podium, as a lectern. Similarly, God alone appears as this universe. 
So God has not really ultimately made the universe also. It is God alone. And who made God? God was not made by anybody. The very definition, meaning of God is the reality which is not made by anybody. I don't know, I didn't understand it. Maybe Anish did. <laughs> but, but very good question, Anish. Very good question. So the direct answer to your question is, if you look at it from God's point of view, nobody made God. Nobody made God. God is. But the more important thing is, you are that God. Your reality. Not the body, not even the name Anish. Not even the thoughts which are going through your mind, I can see, is busily thinking. Not even that. Beyond that, deep inside that, that is the God and it was not made by anybody. Very good. Beautiful question. Let's end on that note. <laughs>